Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves. Here at the Good Dog Pod, we are all about supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. We provide dog lovers with the latest updates in canine health and veterinary care, animal legislation and legal advocacy, canine training and behavior science, and dog breeding practices. Subscribe and join our mission today to help give our dogs the world they deserve. Hey, everybody. Welcome and thank you for joining us. As we launch into our new and exciting Breeder to Breeder series over the next few months, just a quick reminder, Susan Patterson, Gail Watkins, and I have over 120 years of combined breeding experience, but we are not veterinarians. Although we can offer you proven, research-based suggestions, we are not providing veterinary advice. Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and today we're going to kick off a series of podcasts that we are so excited about, and this is the Breeder to Breeder series, and I'm going to be visiting with our breeder experts at Good Dog, Susan Patterson and Gail Watkins and I are going to talk about some really important things that we can share with you as breeders. And so this is just a very new and very exciting concept. And so welcome, you guys. I'm super excited for these conversations. Thanks, Laura. Really happy to be here, Laura. Thank you for including us. Excellent. So today's topic that we're going to cover is one that's probably one of the toughest to tackle. I figured we'd just take this on. We'll take the big one first, and that's stillborn puppies. And, you know, when we breed our first litter, we all have these visions of daisies and puppy breath, and sometimes it doesn't go that way. And so what we want to talk about today is really good research and statistical information that talks about how to prevent stillborn puppies and what may be causing this. Yes, Gail? Absolutely. Yeah, so Laura, most of the information that I'm thinking about these days came from a study, a 2019 study done by Cornelius Moxon and a number of other people at one of the major guide dog institutes, and they looked at just under 2,500 whelpings. Right. And we never get that number of cases to be able to really get some good information out. And actually keep detailed records. I tell people all the time, some of the best knowledge and best information that we have as dog breeders comes from these companies, the guide dog organizations that are breeding hundreds of litters a year. So if you've got 2,500 whelpings to look at and you're keeping detailed records, this is invaluable information and it's relatively new. So Gail, hit us with our key takeaways from this study. So I think the first takeaway, and I suspect this is not news to you guys, is that stillborn puppies are common in dogs. And it is something that as breeders, we have to get our arms around and be able to accept Doesn't mean that we shouldn't do everything we can do to avoid it, but they are common in dogs. It's one of the reasons dogs have so many puppies is because they're not all going to make it. And 
some of them don't even get to take their first breath. I literally just had this conversation. I have a fellow who has one of my bitches that I bred that I am guiding through the process of whelping and raising his first litter. And he had four stillborn in a litter of 15, I might add. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I told him that exact thing. There's a reason that dogs have so many puppies. And so I think that's a great place to start. Part of what we see with stillborn, and Susan, maybe you can speak to this, your experience as well, is numbers of puppies. I think one of the things I want to get off the table first before we talk about stillborn puppies is stillborn litters. And I have had an entire stillborn litter of eight. So before we talk about the study, I think we might want to just get off the table that there can be things like an infection in the uterus. There can be genetic issues. There is also but it's not well studied, the incompatibility of the puppies with the mother. So these are things where the puppies come to almost term, not quite term, but almost term. Maybe, you know, instead of 60 to 63 days, puppies will come at 55 days and they are all deceased. I have had one of those litters as well. And I think that we can do an entire podcast on that topic. But before we go into the study, I think it's important just to say that right from the beginning, and now we can push it aside for another thing, Mm -hmm. because those are some of the things that I've dealt with personally, but I deal with in my reproduction group on Facebook. And I think it is important, like Gail said, to talk about it as something that we can sometimes not do anything about. But sometimes we can, and that's where our testing in the beginning comes from. And I know we've talked about it before, and we're going to talk about it again. Emotional resiliency as a breeder is essential to be able to not just survive being a breeder, but really enjoy it and thrive. If you're looking at a litter, let's say, Lori, you're mentee. If you're looking at a litter of 11 beautiful puppies and all you can think about is the four you lost, then you're missing the journey, which is the 11 that you have. And so maybe that's another podcast we can do at some point. Yeah. We're just getting more ideas we're supposed to be having. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So back to what we're talking about. And let's start with where I think, and I think the study backs me up, Gail, correct me if I'm wrong, that much of what we see with stillborn puppies is when we have really large numbers in a litter of puppies. So litter size is huge in looking at stillborn puppies. And interestingly enough, it's small litters and large litters. So what's the best size? It is the two quartiles. So the sort of the middle half of average for your breed. In this case, in this study, they were primarily looking at large breed dogs because it's a guide dog colony, it's German Shepherds, it's Golden Retrievers, it's Labradors, and then it's combinations of Labs and Goldens, the crossbreds. And so that average litter size is going to be about five. And so for litters that were five to eight, lowest rate of stillborn. Litters under five actually the highest rate of stillborns. Wow. Uh See, this is why we do research, because we (laughs) think we know stuff. Absolutely. So the issue 
for the really small litters was slightly more than the really large litter size. Well, it was about 10% more. Yeah. And it ties to dystocia. So dystocia or whelping problems where labor is not moving along is also directly correlated with the number of stillborns. So natural whelpings with dystocia have significantly more stillborns than natural whelpings without any kind of whelping issues and plant C-sections. So those are the same. I'll just move to birthing method for just a second, then we'll go back to litter size because there's even more to it. But the three kinds of birthing methods that have basically the same, statistically the same stillborn rate are natural whelpings with no dystocia, planned C-sections, and natural whelpings that might have uterine problems, but they are resolved with calcium alone. Okay. And you know, we have talked about calcium and we're going to do a whole section. We're going to talk some more about it. (laughs) And it's a complicated issue, but this study shows that calcium is effective in keeping puppies alive during whelping. So where do we run into problems on birthing methods? Emergency C-sections, especially emergency C-sections where oxytocin is used. And across the board, oxy increases the number of stillborns, whether it's a C-section or whether it's a natural whelping, as does manual manipulation, mechanical manipulation, which surprised me. Trying to get the puppy out. Trying to get the puppy out increases stillborn rate. So the takeaway for me was obviously shoot for those natural whelpings, but if you're running into any problem, calcium first, calcium foremost. Absolutely before every C-section, there should be calcium given. It's interesting that what the three of us have seen in our groups for years is actually being shown to benefit both puppies and bitches. And Susan, talk to us about, and I know Gail, the same thing, you're talking oral calcium. Correct. We're not trying to do an injection or any of that kind of stuff, right? Like, don't get people all freaked out here, right? We're just giving them calcium. We never advocate any form of sub-Q or injectable calcium. And the reason we don't is that it can definitely impact heart, irregular arrhythmias. In the mother or in the puppies? In the mother. And the last thing you need is a mother dog who is having heart problems who's stressed trying to deliver. So oral calcium does not react in the same way. The best and most efficient calcium to use is calcium citrate. That can be purchased in a straight powder. You can buy it Citrical that does come with vitamin D, but it immediately starts work once it hits the mucous membranes. It does not need food to work. A lot of people have started using Tums, but Tums, and I have seen it, in friends who have used Tums and then had to go in for a C-section. And in the bottom of the stomach are these pills Mm -hmm. because it did not work because there was no food in order to appropriately metabolize the Tums. So this is why calcium citrate. And calcium citrate combines with oxytocin to make it stronger. So if you're using calcium and you have to go in for a C-section, you need to let your vet know and they will probably be pretty pleased because then they don't have to worry about adding extra calcium but that's always really important. 
Okay. And the order of those two things matters. Just as Susan just said, calcium first, then oxy. Absolutely. If you need to do oxy, you want to make sure the calcium is in there first. And please, again, I know the answer, but one of you guys, oxytocin is the injectable that your veterinarian will use when they are attempting to avoid having to take your bitch to an emergency C-section. Absolutely. And it is a very effective drug and it triggers contractions. Calcium strengthens contractions. Oxytocin starts contractions. So a lot of times with dystocia, nothing's happening. You can't see any contractions. The bitch is just sitting there. And if you're going to use oxy, we must make sure there isn't a puppy blocking the birth canal. Correct. Essential. And so it is typically going to be best used by your veterinarian after they have examined the bitch, most likely after they've done an x-ray, they can see the positioning of the puppies. And now they can say, I'm going to use oxytocin. That puppy is ready to be born. It's not blocking the birth canal. Let's use oxy. My recommendation is always if your vet gives your bitch an oxytocin injection, stay at the clinic, even if you are in the parking lot. Because if things go awry, that uterus is going to contract no matter what. And if a puppy is by chance stuck or something's going wrong, you want to be able to get back Mm -hmm. into that clinic. So I tell people, just pack your go bag and sit in the parking lot. A lot of vets will give you a spare room and you can just plunk your blankets down. You got all your stuff there. And if she pops out puppies, great. And if she doesn't, help is literally right around the corner as opposed to an hour or two hour drive away. Susan? Well, the other thing that, you know, as Gail said, that works really well is it works well because it kind of pushes the puppies out. But people don't realize that if you have dystocia, there could very well be a puppy blocking the way. And that is nature's way of protecting the bitch. Because if that bitch keeps pushing, the uterus ruptures and we have more problems. The other thing is, I know, and this has happened to me, I have had a stillborn puppy, which we determined was the last puppy coming out. There was no heartbeat, ultrasound. And we decided rather than going in for a C-section that we would instead use perhaps a little more oxytocin and because it is harder to push out a dead puppy than it is a live puppy. A live puppy pushes up against the uterus and kind of helps its way out, whereas a dead puppy is like lifting dead weight. So that's another use for oxytocin, where you do have definite stillborn, no heartbeat via ultrasound, and you know it's not blocking the way. So that's a good use because, you know, while I'm a big believer in using a C-section appropriately, There are times where if the last puppy is deceased and you know it, why put your dog under extra surgery that isn't necessary if you can get the puppy out? Excellent. All right, guys, don't forget that all Good Dog Breeder members can use the email breederofficehours at gooddog.com to ask specific questions or discuss a sensitive topic. Send your email by Monday and get your response in Susan Patterson's Straight from the Whelping Box column by Thursday. Awesome! 
And Avadog's Your Litter A to Z course is available to all Good Dog Breeder members. Just log into your Good Dog account and then go to the Good Breeder Center where you'll find A to Z as well as savvy socialization courses created by Gail Watkins just for you. Okay, so these are good. These are very, very good. So now let's talk about Gail and or Susan, whichever one of you guys wants to jump in on this. How do you define dystocia? I know how I do. If it's past two hours, we have a problem. That's my basic rule of thumb. Any thoughts on that, Gail? Yeah, so this research actually changed my thinking about that, Laura. Excellent. That's why we're using it. This is perfect. So I was on track with you, and I always said that we want to see puppies every two hours. I know there's lots of discussion about whelping pauses, but I also know the longer we wait, the more likely that puppy is not going to be born alive. And yes, we all have stories of puppies born 36 hours after everybody else. They are like playing the lottery. Right. That's the exception, not the norm. It's a whelping pause until it's not. Right. And when it's not, I mean, you can't just sit there and go, oh, it's a whelping pause. It's like, no, we need to do something now. Okay. So Gail, what does the study say that changes our mind? Yeah. So the study looked at what's known as the interpup interval. So this isn't the first puppy. This is between during a whelping, first puppy's already born. When should the next puppy be born? And I've always gone on the two hours and I'm going to be at the vet at two hours for an exam and things like this. Well, what the study showed is there was a massive jump in stillborn rates between below 60 minutes and everything above 60 minutes. (laughs) And literally below 60 to 62 minutes between puppies was a significant increase in stillborn rates. And it went from 4% to 14%. In two minutes? No. Well, less than 62 up to 62. So big, big jump. I mean, now we're looking at one in 10 more puppies that will be stillborn because of that. So they started looking at an average inner pup interval for living puppies versus stillborn. And the average was 65 minutes for living puppies, 102 102 minutes for stillborn puppies. So you and I at our 120 Mm -hmm. were waiting too long. And then they looked at the median. So sort of the most common, and it was 32 minutes between puppies for live puppies. So what this changed for me and for my last two litters was that I am now acting at 45 minutes rather than before it was probably closer to 90 minutes before right, I was... An hour and a half is usually... An hour and a half. I'm good for an hour and a half, then I start to get a little antsy. <laughs> exactly. So I have backed that up to 45 mm. minutes, and now it is time to start doing something to help that puppy in case it's a stuck puppy and all of the other issues that we face. So I thought that was really enlightening. But, you know, what can we do? We'll talk. I know we're going to do another session on that. Yeah, that's our next topic is we're going to get to talking about what causes it and what the study is showing us about them. And then I want to talk about what do we do at 45 minutes? Okay, I'm at 45 minutes. My chances of having a dead puppy are going up exponentially while I sit here and twiddle my thumbs and cross my eyes. What do I do? Number one thing, give calcium. 
and give a lot of it. So if we tie together the other findings in the study, right? so we have a natural whelping without dystocia. That's a great way for puppies to be born, low stillborn rate. But what's another way? A natural whelping with dystocia with calcium. And so if we're beginning to say, hey, that clock is ticking, and I'm beginning, you know, that antsy where you can't stop staring at her and you're looking at the clock and you're looking at her and give calcium, give more calcium. That to me is our number one thing to do. We are going to talk a little bit more through this and then next week's episode is going to be on resuscitating a puppy that has made it out alive, that's got a heartbeat, but is having a hard time. So let's finish up this piece and what we can do to give us the best chance of being able to resuscitate that puppy next week. I'm going to start with calcium and then pass it to Susan. Yeah. So one of the other things that I have started doing is I make syringes. Basically, I have Labradors and Gordon Setters, and those are the dogs that whelp at my house. And I make a 20cc syringe, and I mix up a 1,000 milligrams of calcium powder. I mix it into 50% Pedialyte with a little bit of broth because they like it to taste good and 50% caro syrup or straight table sugar. Because the other thing that I find happens, especially with a over five, under 10 litter is mom gets tired. So I need to feed the muscles and the muscles feed on glucose. I'm not candidly sure about the electrolytes, but it's a do no harm addition. And they are now coming out with doggy electrolytes. So maybe I was onto something. And it was Marty Greer who told me, and she's got a podcast up about preloading. Mm-hmm. When your bitch is starting in active labor before that first puppy comes, you preload that calcium. Mm-hmm. And that gives them the push. But I find that NutraCal also works, Dine, Stat. But I want there to be an energy source because most of our bitches do not eat through whelping. Now I do have one who will eat everything that you feed her through whelping. But if I have to go in for a C-section, I don't want her to have a full stomach. Okay. Now, Susan, I'm going to stop you right there because my advice has always been given to me and I have given out no calcium prior to the first puppy. And I will tell you that the reason that I have said that is because we have a lot of people who didn't recognize what real labor was versus too early. So people were giving calcium days early, and that can truly trick the parathyroid gland into not working with the calcium. So you need to make sure that that bitch is truly in labor, not that she's just fiddle farting around and you think she is. But you can give calcium at the first hard contraction and you can actually give calcium towards the end of stage one labor. So when you know she's making that transition from, you know, nesting and nesting and nesting and nesting and nesting. Panting hysterically. Panting, panting, ripping Mm -hmm. up towels to Mm -hmm. I'm buckling down. You can give calcium at that point. You aren't going to mess up the parathyroid gland that close to well. That is exactly the point, Gail. And we were just finding people who started in the nesting. And we all know that some dogs can start nesting a week before. And so it was, how do we find a safe zone? But in reality, right away. Okay. 
So let me just jump on a few other things, Laura, if it's yeah. okay. So we're going to give calcium, we're going to give some sort of energy. But then for me, I then go into walks. Yes. So we're going to go for a walk. This is where I was kind of hoping we were going to lead into this because I, again, and longtime listeners of the podcast will have heard all of my horror stories of all my various horror stories. But the one that was the most difficult was last year's with 14, 13, 13, I don't know, too many. <laughs> a lot. We ran. That darling little mama dog had, I mean, everything, everybody lived. But I'm telling you, we pulled out every single trick in the book and exercise, wheelbarrow, manipulate. I mean, you name it. So let's talk about that. We go up and down stairs. I don't have any stairs. Well, I'm fortunate. I not only have a slight hill, but I have sets of stairs and we will do that. And I think description of the wheelbarrow, especially with large breed dogs, it is easier for me to do the wheelbarrow. If I have the dog with its head at the bottom step between generally my whelper helper who during COVID has been my husband, here, honey, put the dog's head between your legs and I will have it coming down. So it's already giving me a 30 degree angle. So I only have to go up to a 45 degree angle. And the reason for the wheelbarrow is if you have a malpositioned puppy, the uterus will actually relax enough to let that puppy suck back in and kind of reposition. And then doing what Gail said, the walks make the difference. And then generally it comes right back out. And Susan, describe for people, I know what I'm talking about. Let's give folks a real good visual of what you're doing. You're taking the hind legs of the dog as if they are the handles of the wheelbarrow. Correct. Like when you were a little kid and we had wheelbarrow races with our hands on the ground and your legs up in the air. The difference is I want someone at the front because I want the shoulders of the dog to be braced. I want her to feel supported. Mm. So for okay. especially with large breeds, which can be very challenging, I'm not talking to Jack Russell or a Corgi or something, but a large breed, especially if you're looking at a St. Bernard or, you know, something like this, we have to use tools. And that to me is a really good tool. And the other challenges, I have had puppies be so large that they can't get through the pelvic area. And I do what's called a woods maneuver. I actually have some pictures of myself sitting down with my dog's head facing me on their back. And I am pulling their legs kind of spread apart up to me. And what we're doing is we are widening the pelvic opening so that the puppy can come through because there are times that they will get stuck, especially for me, my large breed dogs. Gail? I do wheelbarrow. The one thing I'll say on wheelbarrow is we are picking the dogs up above the knee. Yes, so thank you. Between Good. the hip and the knee. Unlike right. Not at, at the least when I was a kid, <laughs> right. my brother no. was picking me up by the toes in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're supporting right at the knee. So you're almost making, pushing their foot into itself and kind of compressing it a little bit. So it's the foot and the knee that you're holding together. You're not just holding the hocks up and hanging the dogs by the hocks. Mm -hmm. You've collected it underneath. I don't have any other better descriptive words. And I don't know about you, Susan, but I'm usually doing it for about 10 minutes, mm -hmm. which is extremely hard on me. And it is extremely hard on the bitch. And I always warn people, this 
will be hard on your bitch. It's very uncomfortable for them, but it is better than a C-section. Exactly. And so that for me, you know, I say wonderful things to them and tell them how much I love them. And I know this is uncomfortable, but we got to get this puppy out. And right. so we have to do this. And I find wheelbarrow, woods maneuver, and then running in circles, the, lots of running, but car rides. It's, Inevitable. I have had so many puppies born at exit four on I-84. I mean, we call it the bumpy road protocol. It works. Yep. <laughs> Get in the car and go. It works. So often. But that means if you're going for a ride, so you're either on your way to the vet or you're going to try a drive. Ideally, you have the bitch loose in the back of the car. I never ride with my dogs loose outside of a crate, except for in this situation. And I have someone with them. I was going to say, there's got to be a person back there. Yep, to assist, because often they're going to whelp. And if you're driving, you don't want to be thinking about that. Yeah. Well, this brings me up to the tools that I think are really important for whelping. One is a whelper helper. Even if the person doesn't know too much, if they're willing to follow directions. If they can just drive the car while you sit in the back. Well, even if they're just there for helping with the wheelbarrow, driving, all of those things makes a big difference. The next is a stethoscope for listening to heartbeats because we do lose puppies because we let the heartbeats go so low, they're in stress, and or a Doppler. So you can do your own heartbeats that way. I have a stethoscope, but that's because my daughter's a nurse and I get hand-me-downs. So I think those three things are really important tools. But there was one other thing in the study that was interesting to me, and that was stillborn rate relationship to birth weight. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good thing. With the smallest puppies that have the highest risk at about 6%. And interestingly enough, the largest puppies are very similar at about a 5% risk. So people who overfeed their girls and so have super large puppies can be contributing to a challenge where I'd rather have a mid-sized puppy for me, Labrador's, tend to be roughly pound, but I'm really happy with my 14 ounce puppies because they really bloom. I don't need 16 to 18 ounce puppies because I find that they're not always as thrifty. And I think they have a much harder birth process. I completely agree. And it's Mm -hmm. actually one of the reasons that I push early ultrasounds so hard. The 30-day ultrasound with a veterinarian who is willing to make an attempt at a count. Because once you have that count, you can feed appropriate to litter size. If you have no idea how many puppies she has, and she isn't going to show, say, until the last two weeks, how do you know how much to feed her? Mm -hmm. So if she only has one puppy, you should increase her food by 10% max over pregnancy. If she has 13 or 14 or 15, like your girls, we don't want those eight and nine ounce puppies. They have the highest risk of not surviving both the birth process and those first two weeks. Yep. So we're looking for that sweet spot and we need to feed to get to that sweet spot. So I sort of rant about ultrasounds and counts. And I know not every veterinarian is willing to count, but that's also why I use Doppler's because I can get a pretty good count. I just can't get it quite as good as a good vet with an ultrasound machine. Yeah, sadly, it's the ultrasound machines. I know in my area, I've got to travel fairly far 
And I know that we would prefer not to have an x-ray, especially with breeds who have high cancer rates. There's, you know, risk reward to anything we do, but I would, my next Christmas present from me to me is going to be a Doppler. I've used a Doppler for 15 years and love it. And just want to make sure that I clarify when Susan's talking about an x-ray, she is not talking about an x-ray at 30 days. She is no. talking about an x-ray at 57 days. Actually, 57 to 62. Not at 30. Let's just be really clear about that and not let people get confused. And speaking of stillborns, I think there's one more thing that people forget. Placentas have a shelf life. Very, very important. And we have a lot of people who do not use progesterone testing. And I understand that. Fortunately, there are some great labs. There's BET, there's MSU, there are other labs that you as a breeder can set up an account for. Draw your own blood, spin it down. Again, my tools are centrifuge. I used to do it. Two spin cycles on the top cycle of the top load. I know, I see Laura shaking her head, but it worked. Okay. I'm here to tell you, I've been breeding dogs for 40 years. I do not have my own centrifuge. I do not require my listeners to have a centrifuge. Well, yeah, <laughs> just tools. Just, you know, <laughs> if you're going to do this a lot, I always say, sort of make your Christmas list. What are the things you would like to add? They're not essential, but they may be saving puppies, particularly, you know, there are breeds that struggle to whelp, that just are lazy whelpers and we're going to end up with, we're looking at 65 or even 66 days post-ovulation. And I think Susan's point's very well taken. Placentas die rapidly as the corpus lutea die on the ovary and they're going to die at 64 days post-ovulation. You might get another 24 hours. Those placentas, they just begin to dissolve very rapidly. That kills puppies and it kills them very quickly. So you're sitting there listening to a heart rate and it's day 65 and you're like, oh, those heart rates are at 180, they're at 200, it's all good. Within four hours, that can be over. Yeah, you can lose the whole litter. Yeah. So I think that's a critical thing. Right. So again, we're going to go back to encouraging progesterone timing. No matter. No matter. And you don't have to necessarily draw a lot of blood. I generally start drawing day five, day seven, because I know when I see first blood, I actually only did two draws for a girl I just bred this week. We did one on Friday and she was 3.4. And on Monday, she was 22.9. We know when she ovulated. We know when we got She ovulated. (laughs) Yes, she did. (laughs) But it is one of those tools. It is the golden standard for being able to It isn't just timing the breeding so that we get a nice size litter, but it is making sure that we don't go past our expiration date. And, you know, in conjunction with this study, I think there's a lot of good tools out there that will help us Mm -hmm. be better breeders with lots of science and knowledge. Excellent. All right, you guys, thank you so much for this very tough topic to start our Breeder to Breeder series. But the good news is that we've got the hard stuff out of the way. Now we're going to talk about all the things that we can do. So catch up with us next week for that. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Laura. All right, everybody. Thanks for taking us with you today. If you're not a member of Good Dogs Community and you're interested in more information like this, as well as gaining access to our exclusive benefits, you can apply to join today at gooddog.com backslash 
join. That's gooddog.com backslash join. Good Dog is a secure online community that advocates for dog breeders, educates the public, helps informed puppy buyers connect directly with certified good breeders, and promotes responsible dog ownership. Good Dog is offering its good breeders special advanced access to the video recordings and transcripts for the full three-part Q&A webinar series with Dr. Hutchinson. All you have to do is sign up as a breeder at gooddog.com slash join. That is G-O-O-D-D-O-G dot com slash join. Or click the link in the show notes.